0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com freebooks free books for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, a biblical response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, Copyright 1981, I am reading the revised and expanded edition, dedicated to P.T. Bauer, Ford, by Gary North. Introduction. Ronald Sider said, I really believe I am not a legalist, but somehow I'm coming across that way. The Wittenberg Door, October-November 1979, page 28. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Matthew 7:15 and 16. Introduction During the fighting in Nicaragua, the Jubilee Fund, a ministry of the other side, gave money for food, medicine, and clothing. Some went to Sandinista guerrillas, and this may have helped their fighting. The other side, September 1979, page 41. Religion and Revolution Revolution is a religious faith. All men created in the image of God are fundamentally religious. All cultural activity is essentially an outgrowth of man's religious position, for our life and thought are exercised either in obedience to or rebellion against God. All men, says St. Paul, are conscious of their rebellion, self-conscious to a degree which leaves them inexcusable, Romans 1, 18 through 26. But the avowed revolutionary is self-conscious to a greater degree, hence often more obviously religious than many of his fellow men. Throughout history, revolutionaries have demonstrated an almost limitless facility for appropriating as their own the religious terminology of the surrounding culture. Their works abound with references to infallibility, regeneration, and faith. Revolutionaries in France were offered a new version of Holy Communion in which the priest would proclaim, This is the body of the bread which the rich owe to the poor. Some spoke of the Holy Communist Church and of the egalitarian church outside of which there can be no salvation. In Germany, revolutionaries published family devotional literature, responsive readings, and even a communist Lord's Prayer. So be it. In thy holy name we'll overturn the old rubbish. No masters and no servants. Amen. Money and property shall be abolished. This tendency to fuse Christian language with with revolutionary concepts manifests itself again and again. The radical James Naylor rode into Bristol in 1656, seated on a donkey, with his disciples strewing palm branches before him. The terrorist John Brown claimed to be God's angel of death. Adolf Hitler represented himself as a defender of Christianity. One explanation of all this is the revolutionaries' desire to be as God, to center all devotion, in his own messianic program, but another reason may be just as important insofar as the cultural acceptance of the revolution is concerned. James H. Billington writes, Indeed, communism probably would not have attracted such instant attention without this initial admixture of Christian ideas. In the past, the evangelical wing of Christianity in the United States has been generally conservative in its political and economic views. There may have been more of instinct than a principle in some of this. But the usual assumption was that no one who claimed to believe in the authority of Scripture could seriously hold to socialistic or revolutionary ideas. But there are new voices in evangelicalism today claiming that a truly biblical Christianity demands centralized economic planning and the liberation of the downtrodden masses throughout the world. Faithfulness to Scripture is being equated with a redistribution of wealth. Notions of social reform, once thought to be the province of aberrant liberals, may now be heard down the, down the street in the Baptist Church. Yet what they are preaching is the revolution. It is not presented so baldly, of course. Most Christians would not be so easily seduced if it were called by a true name. It is therefore altered into revolution by installments. The results are nevertheless the same. Expropriation of the wealthy is theft under any name. In every revolution of the past, words were revolutionized in meaning, and ordinary people were moved to extraordinary acts without realizing that the impressive words had been redefined. Justice meant injustice. Freedom meant coercion. Humanity meant savagery. Nonviolence meant war without end. The mark of a Christian movement is its willingness to submit to the demands of Scripture, not, mind you, merely to principles abstracted from their context and loaded with new content, but rather the actual, concrete, explicit statements of God's Word. You shall not steal, for instance. That must not be revitalized or relativized on the mere excuse that the thief has no bread. It must not be violated just because someone has found a principle that God would like everyone to have bread. It must not be transgressed with the spurious rationale that the thief should have been given the bread in the first place. If you want principles, here's one. Theft is theft. Easy to remember, uncomplicated, and very biblical. The Christian who advocates theft in the name of social justice is in truth calling for the revolution, whether or not he fully realizes what he is doing. And we must not allow the lovely sounds of the words to disguise their meaning. The great Dutch Christian historian of revolution, Groen von Prinsterer, pointed out that wherever the revolution has been at work, it has become apparent that it considers law to be mere convention a product of the human, of the Christian socialist movement as well. That its only real principle is the principle of unbelief. The principle of unbelief, the sovereignty of reason and the sovereignty of the people, must end, while proclaiming liberty either in radicalism or in despotism, in the disintegration of society or in the tyranny of a state in which all things are leveled without any regard to true liberties and true rights. A man or movement may claim to be Christian, and yet not be. A man or movement may be Christian, and yet have unbiblical ideas. The test is scripture, and scripture alone. Not wishes, not rights, not wants or needs. Try every word a man speaks at the bar of God's inerrant Word. Those who advocate the lawless overthrow of society, even if it is technically legal, are opposing God's commands. The ultimate end of the revolution is always unbelief. The defining feature of the revolution is its hatred of the gospel, its anti-Christian nature. This feature marks the revolution not when it deviates from its course and lapses into excesses, but on the contrary, precisely when it holds to its course and reaches the conclusion of its system. The true end of its logical development. This mark belongs to the revolution. The revolution can never shake it off. It is inherent in its very principle and expresses and reflects its essence. It is the sign of its origin. It is the mark of hell. The brutality of the French Revolution was not endemic to that particular situation alone. It is essential to the very nature of the revolution itself. All revolutions have begun with sincere pleas for liberation. All have been carried on by ever-increasing justifications of infringements on liberty. All have ended in chaos and tyranny. Revolt against God's eternal standards can produce nothing else. One of the most prominent of the new voices in evangelicalism is Ronald J. Sider, Professor of Theology at Eastern Baptist Seminary in Philadelphia. He is the president of Evangelicals for Social Action, a national organization committed to the preaching and practice of biblical justice and peace. As an ESA pamphlet puts it, the ESA sponsors a wide variety of activities, political action groups, pastors' conferences, economic workshops, tracts, a newsletter, church justice committees, and so on. Cider himself has convened conferences in this country and abroad to deal with social justice issues, particularly in the area of simple living, the practice of living as closely as possible to a subsistence level in order to share excess income with others. He has written articles for several standard evangelical publications, such as Christianity Today and his magazine, as well as for more radical magazines such as The Other Side. The latter is published by Jubilee Fellowship, an organization founded by Cider, which shares ESA's Philadelphia address. Jubilee Fellowship sells third-world products, and administers the Jubilee Fund, a tax-exempt charity which sent money to the Sandinista, the Marxist guerrillas, during the revolution in Nicaragua. I have been unable to discover how the financing of terrorists serves the cause of biblical justice and peace. Sider is probably most well known for his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger* which presents in detail the ESA philosophy of of Christian socialism, although he does not call it that in the book. He has also edited two other books, Living More Simply, collected papers from his U.S. consultation on simple lifestyle, and Cry Justice, annotated Bible quotations on poverty. The purpose of the present book is to examine and refute Sider's thesis from the viewpoint of biblical law. My position is that the Bible calls for a free market in which the state does not intervene. This is not a pure laissez-faire economic system in an anarchic or antinomian sense. The laws of the Bible do prohibit certain activities from taking place. Consenting adults are not the highest authority. But in the normal transactions of the market, the government must not interfere Prices and wages are to be set by consumers in the context of supply and demand. The state does not subsidize certain industries, nor does it prohibit men from making a profit. Charity is personal, though not purely voluntary, since biblical law commands it. But on the other hand, those laws are not enforced by the state. The Bible mandates no civil penalties for failing to obey the charity law. The Bible stands against all forms of socialism and statism. Is Ronald Sider a Marxist? He claims that he is not, and in the technical sense there is no reason to doubt this, although he does hold many Marxist economic fallacies. But Marxism is not the only form of socialism. After all, Hitler was a socialist also. The common notion that Nazism and Communism are completely antithetical is wholly false. Both are command systems in which the means of production are controlled by the state. Hans Sinholz once stated the difference in this way. In Russia, all owners are shot. In Germany, all owners who disobeyed are shot. The hostility between Nazis and communists arose because they were rivals, not opposites. The issue is that Sider is a statist. Statist. He holds that the state should control virtually every aspect of the economy. This belief is a complete denial of everything the Bible teaches on the responsibilities of government. Is Ronald Sider a Christian? He claims that he is he finds the evidence for Jesus' resurrection surprisingly strong. So strong, in fact, that Sider concludes Jesus was probably alive on the third day. (coughs) It's hard to imagine the Apostle Paul or Saint Athanasius putting it quite the same way. I think they were a little more convinced. But at least it is clear that Sider is somewhere in the Christian camp. Moreover, as an evangelical, he opposes theological liberalism because it is allowing our thinking and living to be shaped by the surrounding society's views and values rather than by biblical revelation. Yet it is just that which Sider has done. He has allowed his economic views to be shaped by an increasingly vocal socialistic element in our society, not by the word of God the whole world is in the grip of of the idea of revolution. As John Chamberlain has said, thou shalt not covet means that it is sinful even to contemplate the seizure of another man's goods, which is something which socialists, whether Christian or otherwise, have never managed to explain away. That is the issue. Socialism is theft. I'm not speaking of the voluntary sharing of goods, but rather the state-enforced redistribution of wealth. If someone, even the government, takes your property against God's word, it is theft. And Sider advocates state socialism. As we shall see, he regards it as being morally superior to voluntary sharing, which is to say legalized theft is better than personal charity and charity. That is the main point of contention between us. Another point has to do with his use of envy and guilt to manipulate rich Christians into accepting socialism. His arguments are only superficially biblical. In reality, they are psychological instruments to induce guilt. And the guilt is not objective moral guilt, but the psychological, sociological feeling of guilt because of transgressing some man-made law. God wants us to feel guilty only when we are guilty of breaking God's commands, And then we should repent and obey, and not have to feel guilty any longer, because God forgives those who turn to him. But sociological guilt is used as a manipulative device to prepare us for socialism. The cider guilt trip is unbiblical. The other aspects of my argument have to do with e- with economics. Christians have generally left economics to the secularist, and that is why so many have fallen for Cider's socialistic fallacies. I have tried to explain the principles of biblical economics clearly and simply, without a lot of verbiage. <coughs> but just in case, I have included a glossary and an extensive bibliography of reliable of reliable books most of which are relatively easy to read. Of course, all books must be tested in the light of Scripture, which means you must acquire a familiarity with the Bible, particularly with regard to what it says on economics. The book of Proverbs is important for this, as well as the books of Moses. Economics is not boring. In fact, these days, it's pretty scary. It's a pretty scary subject. Most of what you do all day is an economic activity, and you need to know what God's Word says about that big chunk of your life. A few words about how to read this book would be in order. First, some may be offended at certain rather playful observations I make about Sider's position. On this point, I stand firmly with the prophet Elijah. That which is ridiculous deserves ridicule. Besides, it helps you keep reading. But despite the occasional humor I have taken cider seriously as well he is deadly earnest and his policies are just plain deadly second the first two chapters form the basic argument for the rest of the book they are longer chapters but the reader is advised to start at the beginning most of what i say elsewhere is, is will assume that you have absorbed the first two chapters <laughs> the cider thesis It may be helpful at this point to introduce some of Sider's ideas for those who are unfamiliar with them. A major theme is that of the simple life, as I noted above. We shall see later that this official position of Sider's is actually a hoax. I won't tell you which chapter that's in. Read the book. (laughs) But the fundamental principle behind this is the view that sin is built into the structure of reality. That sin is in things, and that things, in fact, actually cause us to sin. Consider the following lines from his book. Possessions are highly dangerous. Jesus was so un-American that he considered riches dangerous. Riches are dangerous because their seductive power very frequently persuades us to reject Jesus and his kingdom. (coughs) An abundance of possessions can easily lead us to forget that God is the source of all good. Possessions tempt us to forsake God. Riches often harden the hearts of the wealthy. Possessions are positively dangerous because they often encourage unconcern for the poor, because they lead to strife and war, and because they seduce people into forsaking God. Possessions are highly dangerous. They lead to a multitude of sins. Possessions are dangerous. Possessions are dangerous. It is probably safe to conclude that Sider thinks possessions are dangerous. In Sider's account, they seem downright malicious, willing, willfully bent on evil. Possessions have seductive power. They harden our hearts. They persuade and encourage us. And although Sider's inserts the disclaimer that possessions are not innately evil, it is nevertheless clear from his discussion that possessions are up to no good. The true Christian will bravely do battle against these monsters, and Sider hopes to win the war on affluence. What seems most strange is that Sider goes on to request us to share those these dangerous, dangerous things with other people. <laughs> Fun aside, is there any biblical evidence to it to indicate that possessions can really tempt us? Are they truly dangerous? Such pharisaical environmentalist notions are completely condemned by scripture. It is an implication that God is really to blame since he created possessions in the first place. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1, 14-17 out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, Matthew fifteen nineteen The problem is sin, not possessions. God owns everything, yet he is not tempted by evil James one thirteen for he is righteous. The fact that a rich man forsakes God is not due to his riches seducing him, but to his own evil heart. You could as easily say that the poor man's lack of possession seduces him to steal. Proverbs 30, verse 9b. But sin is in the heart of a fallen man. I dare say everyone reading these lines has heard the common misquotation of 1 Timothy 6.10. Money is the root of all evil. But Paul says it is the love of money that produces the evil acts. The problem is not with the money itself, but with men, with our hearts. Regardless of a wicked man's financial condition, he will always seek an excuse to sin. If he is poor, he will envy and steal. If he is rich, he will boast and oppress, Proverbs 37 through 9. But the godly man will say... I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. But this the envious man cannot do. He frets and complains over his wants, real, or imagined. Particularly, he is unwilling to allow others to be content in their state. In another guilt-inducing remark, Sider says that capitalists worship mammon by idolizing economic success as the highest good. What is a capitalist? Does he really worship money? Assuredly, many capitalists do worship money because they are sinners, not because they are capitalists. But I must say, after reading Sider's book, I find him much more preoccupied with money and possessions than any capitalist I ever met. Sider's extreme generalization is without foundation. There are only two really valid definitions of capitalist. One, a person who invested capital in a business business. And two, a person who advocates the free enterprise private property order known as capitalism. An offshoot from the first definition is three, a person who is wealthy, but is rather sloppy, since not all capitalists are wealthy. Sider's opposition to the wealthy has caused him to expand on that third definition. Capitalist equals wealthy to come up with number four, a person who is evil. Thus, if you invest in business, if you believe in private property, if you are in any sense a capitalist, you are a mammon worshiper. Money is your God, according to Sidon. In terms of this, he urges us to cultivate a carefree attitude toward possessions, using as his justification Christ's words, about not being anxious about the future. Luke 12, 22-31. The point of the biblical passage is to underscore the fact that all economic success comes from God, and that our concern about the future may not conflict with the demands of his kingdom. Jesus is saying, where is your heart? What is your motivation? Why are you alive? What are you seeking? If we desire power, status, or recognition above the demands of God's law, we are wrong. Getting ahead does not come by fretting, worrying, and coveting, but by obeying God's word and trusting in his providence. This does not mean carelessness or lack of planning for the future. It means that we must not make wealth our God. It means realizing that if God so wonderfully and beautifully cares for the lower creatures, There is no reason to think that he will abandon his own people. It means that we can go to sleep at the end of the business day in the secure knowledge that our Father in Heaven never sleeps, that the Almighty Creator and Lord of the Universe is watching over us. We should try to succeed in our business. The goal of success is a necessary aspect of all human action, but we must never try to be autonomous. In all that we do, we must work in the fear of God, desiring to glorify him by our labors. Psalm 127, 1 and 2 gives us both a stern warning and a great promise. <coughs> me. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. All our activity is vain apart from the blessing of God. Notice that God does not condemn the builder for constructing the house or the watchman for guarding the city. These tasks require concern about possessions and their security. Builders and watchmen are needed. We are not to say, let the Lord provide with no foresight on our part. And Jesus does tell us to plan ahead. Luke 14, 28-30. But if we are under God's curse, no amount of planning will enable us to escape calamity. If the Lord does not build with us, if we do not seek him as our highest good, we are lost, and our goods will eventually be inherited by those who are godly, Proverbs 13:22. The man who obeys God has the deep assurance that God is always building, always watching. He can really sleep and relax under God's provision. The wicked businessman in Amos' day was unable to rest during the Sabbath, anxious as they were to make the bucks in any way they could. But God was not building with them, and when the Assyrians invaded, the watchmen of Israel were unable to prevent destruction. The Bible encourages godly labor, thrift, diligence, and planning. But the workaholic is condemned as well as the sluggard. Both live in defiance of the law of God. The lazy man will not work, and the man who is enslaved to his work cannot rest. Jesus rejects both. Obedience to him requires careful stewardship and trust in his care. The acquiring of wealth must be done in accordance with God's law. But God's law is not sufficient for Sider's unbiblical goals. He cheerfully goes beyond the law demanding that all income should be given to the poor after one satisfies bare necessities. Why? Because no less an authority than John Wesley said so. He quotes Wesley's boast, If I leave behind me ten pounds, you and all mankind bear witness against me that I lived and died a thief and a robber. And cider gushes, Wesley's practice reflects biblical principles. What biblical principles? What scriptural doctrine tells us to leave practically nothing behind us? Wesley was certainly no paragon of biblical standards. Many of his actions were in flagrant contradiction to the actual laws of the Bible. And when God's holy word informs us that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, Proverbs 13:22, we are on dangerous ground if we depart from it, on the mere basis of John Wesley's questionable authority. Sider goes on to commend the communal way of life of such groups as Reba Place Fellowship, which practices total economic sharing among its members. Just how biblical this practice is, as a normal lifestyle, will be indicated in chapter 12. Scripture stands in terms of community, not commune. Complete economic equality is never stated as a Christian ideal. It may be a temporary necessity in an emergency, but it is not a model for the usual Christian lifestyle. God has called us to dominion, the developing of the earth by men with different gifts and abilities, increasing the earth's productivity for the glory of God. The communal ethic is not oriented toward dominion, but toward bare minimum survival. Giving money away does not produce anything for the future. Its whole function is to provide for the immediate needs for present consumption alone. This does not mean we shouldn't give our money away, we should. There are valid needs in the present, but God's law is structured so that usually a good portion of income can go toward production. This is the only way to bring lasting long-term benefit to all. That thesis will be developed in the chapters that follow. We must be sure that in all our thinking and acting we are operating according to the clear mandates of Scripture. The Bible is law for all of life. To to, To depart from it is foolishness, a word we should not use idly. Biblically, it describes the condition of the man who has departed from God's Word, who constructs great programs on the powdery basis of autonomous reason, who self consciously lives a lie, whose end is destruction. The words of Otto Scott are especially relevant for our examination of Ronald Sider and his writings. The figure of the fool is widely misunderstood. He is neither a jester, nor a clown, nor an idiot. He is instead the dark side of genius. For if a genius has the ability to see and make connections beyond the normal range of vision, the fool is one who can see and disconnect.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts,